All right, so as I said before, this evening we find ourselves in the third Sunday of Advent. And our sermon series this whole time has been t- titled the Shaped by Our Songs. The Advent and Christmas season uh, have some of the most you know, amazing music. We, we reserve these songs kind of for this time of year. I, we never get to sing Oh Holy Night other times of year. It's such an amazing song. Uh, but just by sheer volume, Christmas, the, the Christmas music collection far exceeds you know, the songs that we have for Easter or other significant holidays like Pentecost or Trinity Sunday. In fact, maybe there's a series there somewhere, like shaped by the songs we don't sing and what our silence says about our theology, but that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, our, our songs inform our, our thinking, they inform or deform our, you know, our minds, and they evoke emotions. And since there's so many Advent and Christmas songs we sing this time of year, I thought it'd be fun to dig into our music a little bit and find out the roots behind the songs and whether or not they're shaping us in a good direction. Thus far, we've explored O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We saw how each verse in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is rooted both in an Old Testament description of who Jesus would be and the New Testament fulfillment of that passage. And last Sunday, we looked at a way in a manger, and we saw how some of its references reinforced the quite unchristian Gnostic view of an over-spiritualized Jesus, while other parts of the song are incredibly helpful for increasing our faith in Jesus, our intimacy with him, and our trust and our adoration for God, who makes himself available and vulnerable to his creation. Whereas Away in a Manger is one of the most popular Christmas songs and has been for decades, the song that we're looking at tonight, The the Hands Who First Held Mary's Baby or Child, is likely new to most of us, well, except for the offertory we just sang. If that was was your first time, there you go. Compared to Away in a Manger, which was written sometime by an anonymous author in the mid-1800s, The Hands That First Held Mary's Child was written in 1985 by a guy named Thomas Traeger, a professor and Episcopal priest. Obviously, I didn't choose to preach on the themes of this song because it's a popular favorite. I chose it because I would love for our church to learn it and maybe to make it one of the staple songs that we sing in this season. I chose it because it has an important message and it gives voice to those who are seldom heard and rarely considered in popular Christian music or in poetry or in theological circles or the councils of strategists and experts. I'm talking about the working class, the blue collar people who get things done with their hands and their willpower, the craftspeople, the workers. Many of you have known me uh, only as Chris Eldridge, pastor of Lettered Street's Covenant Church, a sort of nerdy guy who likes sci-fi and soccer and bass guitar and Greek words and Bible history. I mean, you, you know me like that. And maybe our relationship goes back before Lettered Street's to when we first moved here to Bellingham and I was in grad school. And I look out and I see some of those faces here too. But before I started that chapter of my life, I was more likely to be cleaning grease and oil from under my fingernails than studying Greek. Before being a pastor, I was only ever a blue-collar guy. I got my first job at age 14, 
doing landscaping for my neighbor who had a small business doing landscaping. And I did that job in summers until I was 19. And then I joined the Coast Guard as an enlisted person. I served in the Coast Guard seven years doing a number of different things, but primarily working on diesel engines and hydraulic systems and doing chemical and oil spill response and a little bit of law enforcement. And even after following a call to ministry, I worked as a construction laborer most of my years in undergraduate education. I was one of those guys who uh, was there at the work party at the church, cleaning and painting and pulling weeds and moving tables and chairs, roughhousing with the youth group as a volunteer. And I connected more with the doing parts of church than with the leadership groups and the theological discussions. But in an effort to, to serve the church more fully, when I really believed that God had to call my life for ministry, I knew that I had to to get more education, more formal education. And so I embarked on a seven and a half year journey through undergrad and then graduate studies. And while I did develop a love for Greek and church history and theology and pastoral counseling, I always wanted to stay connected to my blue collar roots. In fact, my second year of grad school, I came to a crossroads in my, in my life. Part of me was exploring going the route of PhD in church history. I was encouraged by my professor to do that, and I, I had this geeky desire to study church history, and I love it. It fascinates me. But in the end, I really feel called to pastor a parish with people, taking what I learned from the best of scholarship and hopefully making it accessible to everyone. The Hands That First Held Mary's Child is a song about Jesus from Joseph's perspective. In the Bible, Joseph is literally silent. He doesn't have one line. Think about that. The adoptive father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, doesn't get one line in all of Scripture. And yet, his life preaches. His humility, his obedience, his strength, all contribute to the story of Jesus such that without Joseph, one can hardly imagine the story at all. Joseph is every man. He's not a Bible scholar. He isn't in the Bible because he has an advanced degree or because of his special talents. His special talent is that he's willing. So let's explore this song. And again, for the sake of time, you don't want to be here all night, we're just going to be able to, to get some of the highlights of the song. But I'm going to ask Jess to put the first verse up and I'll read it, and you can follow along. The hands that first held Mary's child were hard from working wood. From boards they sawed and nailed and filed, and splinters they withstood. This day they gripped no tool of steel, they drove no iron nail, but cradled from the head to heel, our Lord, newborn and frail. The scriptures do mention that Joseph was a carpenter, Jess, you can feel free to leave that up there just so people can reference it. Around the time that Jesus was born, there was a particularly high demand for carpenters and skilled craftsmen because of the rebuilding of a nearby city to Nazareth called Sepphoris. Sepphoris was destroyed uh, decades earlier by the Romans. It was burnt to the ground. And so all of these tradespeople were coming back to this area to rebuild the city. And many of the workforces came from small towns around Sepphoris, like Nazareth. So scholars say this is completely plausible. Joseph was probably a carpenter, like a lot of other men in that time period. But while his professional life was ordinary and mundane for his day, his moral character 
was extraordinary by anyone's standards, really. Having found out that his fiance was pregnant before they had come together in marital intimacy, how could he have concluded anything else but that Mary had been unfaithful to him? You have to appreciate that in first century Palestine, engagement or betrothal was a legally binding engagement. Generally lasting a year, a betrothed couple were legally married without cohabitation or sexual intimacy. That meant that infidelity during this engagement process was the same as adultery and would end in divorce, quite possibly um, also ending with the death penalty uh, for the, you know, the guilty party or at least public shaming. In their culture, there's no such thing as a private affair. Uh, honor and shame incurred on an individual spreads like a disease to the families and friends of that individual. So the expected response for a man in Joseph's position would have been to take Mary to a very public court hearing where she would be declared an adulteress, the child illegitimate, Joseph and his family would maintain their honor while Mary's would be shamed and she disgraced if not executed. But Joseph chooses a very different course of action. Like any man, he was angry and deeply hurt, but instead of trying to harm Mary further, he chose to divorce her discreetly, exercising a loophole in the interpretation of the law called the any cause divorce. It's not really creative, is it? Just any cause divorce. Under the any cause divorce and interpretation Jesus would grow up to teach strongly against... A man could divorce his wife for any trivial reason, even burning the evening dinner, as some people have postulated in in history. Joseph chose this type of divorce so that he could get out of his relationship without bringing harsh shame and consequences of adultery onto Mary. After all, the whole world would soon know that she had a baby and he wasn't in the picture soon enough. The the scriptures consider Joseph to be a righteous man, not because he followed the law exactly the way it's written, but because he was gracious and compassionate. Joseph may not speak with his words in the Bible, but his integrity and his compassion and quiet strength are a lesson to every one of us. When I put myself in his shoes, when I allow myself to feel a deep wrong a deep injustice, a deep sadness. I am moved by the words of this song that speak of those hard-worn hands. Hands that if they belonged to a different man might be capable of great harm and revenge. But these hands of Joseph let go of their tools to cradle the soft and vulnerable infant Jesus. The story goes deeper in the second verse. When Joseph marveled at the size of that small breathing frame and gazed upon those bright new eyes and spoke the infant's name, the angel's voice he once had dreamed poured out from heaven's height and like the host of stars that gleamed, blessed earth with welcome light. Okay, clearly the songwriter has taken some creative license, right? We don't know that Joseph marveled at the size of Jesus' breathing frame or that he gazed into his eyes. It sounds really romantic. But watch this. Any dads or uncles out there? Dads or uncles? It's a lot of people, okay? Ever held a newborn baby? Men, not if you've held a newborn baby before. 
okay? Ever marveled at how they feel in your hands? Like, how can this thing be alive? It's so small. Am I going to hurt it? What do I do? Have you ever looked into the eyes of a baby? It happened to me, actually, in Eliana's baptism a few weeks ago. Her, Eliana just looks, right? She just looks with her eyes. And I felt like at first I was looking at her, and then I realized I was like being enveloped by those eyes. It was like I was looking into a deep pool of mystery, right? That's what, that's what an infant does sometimes to us. It, it melts us and makes us feel as vulnerable as the infant in our, our hands, this mystery of God's life. Scripture might not record Joseph doing these things, but man, you can picture it happening, can't you? And the song evokes this biblical reality. And here's the reality. This hard man, who must have felt hard done by Mary, accepts his role as adoptive father. He receives the son, not knowing that in so doing, he would be received by the son. What love and humility it must have taken to swallow his pride and to receive this child. And there's two things I want to point out about this reality in this verse. First, notice the line, and spoke the infant's name. The angel's voice he once had dreamed poured out from heaven's height. Most of us probably think that after Joseph had a dream in which an angel comes. Remember, with Joseph, it wasn't an actual visitation. It was a, a dream about an angel that he had. And, and in this dream, the angel spoke to him about keeping Mary as his wife and naming the baby Jesus. And most of us think that after that happened, you know, it must have been settled in Joseph's mind, like no big deal. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a weird dream? I've had a dream I'm flying before, but I did not wake up the next day and jump off a cliff, right? It doesn't necessarily convince you every time. Joseph had a dream with an angel in it. The angel told him that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, right? Which did line up with her story, at least. But still, maybe he was thinking, what if my mind is inventing this? What if I want to believe this really badly? Because I love Mary, and I don't want to have to go through all of this stuff. Joseph acted on faith. He could not prove that that dream was real. He couldn't prove that 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 was a real angel from God. He couldn't prove that Mary was really pregnant by the Holy Spirit. A lot of angels would have to convince me that if Corey got pregnant without me, that, you know, it was by the Holy Spirit. That's crazy talk. Joseph acted on faith. He believed on faith. But when he first held Jesus, when he first spoke the name that the angel had instructed him, call this child Yeshua, Jesus Yahweh saves. Only then did Joseph know that the angel's word had truly come to pass. It was something in those eyes, I got to think. Those eyes. The second thing I want to point out. Up until that moment, we think Joseph is the one who is gracious and accepting. He's the one offering adoption. He's the one offering welcome to this child who is not his. But the song turns on this line, poured out from heaven's height, and like the host of stars that gleamed blessed earth with welcome light. In an instant, we realize that the greater welcome is the welcome of those eyes of that baby, Jesus's eyes. Joseph took the initiative to open his home, his family, his name, his reputation, and his heart to Jesus. Jesus. 
And what he found was that Jesus' eyes communicated an openness to Joseph, an openness to the world, a welcome to you and to me by the God of the universe. Joseph thinks he's giving Jesus his house, his roof, his name, his adoption. And what he's finding is that he will be adopted into the family of God through this son. And that same offer is to you and myself, right? Adopted by the living God, we receive his name and his mantle and his lineage. We're part of this bigger story because of this welcome from the child. Poured out from heaven's height, and like the host of stars that gleam, Jesus blessed earth with welcome light. Tonight we heard the reading from John 1. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness could not overpower it. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man, woman, and child. He was in the world, and the the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. But, oh, and I love a theological but, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, not be called, to become children of God. That's the welcome from heaven coming through Jesus to you and me. Later in John 8, Jesus would declare outright, I am the light of the world. So Joseph, this ordinary man, a carpenter, a blue-collar worker, all he had was faith and willingness to obey, and God was able to work through him to adopt the light of the world. If you have those two things, faith and willingness, even in an ounce, think of what God might be able to do in and through you. Think of how he might fill you with his life. In verse 3, we sing, This child will be Emmanuel, not God upon a throne, but God with us, Emmanuel, as close as blood and bone. The tiny form in Joseph's palms confirmed what he had heard, and from his heart rose hymns and psalms for heaven's human word. If away in a manger is accused of presenting a Jesus that is too spiritual and too otherworldly, then this song is the antidote. Jesus is Emmanuel, the with us God. He left the comfort of heaven, the throne of heaven, to be with us. It's hard to identify with a God who is in a different dimension on a throne. Like, that's just a weird image for, especially a 21st century person, right? We're democracy. It's easy to identify with the baby from a working class family who could also um, humble the finest scholars of his day. In last week's sermon on Away in a Manger, I left a bunch of you hanging. I apologize. I I hope to make it up to you now. Last week, I mentioned two heresies that are kind of supported in Away in a Manger, and I only got to one, Gnostic Christianity. The other heresy is Apollinarianism which was founded by, you guessed it, Apollinaris in the 4th century AD. Like many heresies that would later rise up, Apollinarianism was a form of belief that denied the full humanity of Jesus. Heavily influenced by Greek thought, Apollinarianism adopted the belief that the human person is made up of three basic parts, 
the flesh, right, like the body, and then they have this idea that the body also has two souls. One is the sensitive soul or the emotions, and one is the rational soul or the will. And and this view of a person, by the way, I'm not saying it's biblical, I don't think it's right, uh, but that's kind of a platonic in general way of thinking about a person or, or that worldview. Anyway, the point is that Apollinarius believed that if Jesus was fully human and humans have a tainted will which causes them to sin, then Jesus would have to sin. So therefore, Jesus can't be fully human. Jesus has a body and he has the emotions of a human, but where normally a human will would be, no, 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 no. God's special sauce is in there. And so Jesus was this hybrid, not fully human at all. Now, do we get to dissect Jesus and know how the human and divine interaction works? No. How, why is this such a big deal? Why split hairs over this? Why is it declared a heresy? Well, it has to do with salvation, which is a pretty big deal, right? Orthodox Christianity, East, West, for all time, teaches that only humans can atone for their own sin. Only humans can atone for their own sin, but only God can forgive and save. So we've got a problem here. We did the wrong, we do the sinning, only we can pay for it. No one else can pay for it. But we can't forgive ourselves. Only God can, can, for, can forgive. We can never be good enough to atone for our sin because we're all sinners. We can never be the perfect sacrifice. See, you, you see the tension? We've got a big problem. And so Orthodox Christianity teaches us that in order to fully redeem us, Jesus had to be fully human and fully God. If, like Apollinarius taught, that Jesus did not have a human mind, uh, then he couldn't redeem that part of us. Oh my gosh, that's, that's bad news because my mind is severely broken and I need that part of me redeemed as well. I need a new heart. See, the will in in that line of thinking is the heart. Apollinarianism was rejected by multiple Orthodox leaders, but finally deemed heretical in the Council of Chalcedon in 451. You see my church history nerdiness going on a bit. For those of you inquiring minds did want to know, you asked me. Okay, Now, that doesn't mean that Apollinarianism and things like that don't still raise their ugly heads. It's as old as Jesus himself. If we look at Matthew 13, 55, after Jesus had just performed miraculous deeds and taught like a genius through all of these kingdom parables, the crowds in his hometown are like, wait a minute, isn't this Jesus? Isn't his dad the carpenter? Joseph? And his Mary, Mary's his mom, right? And we know his brothers and his sisters, so he can't be the Messiah. He's too ordinary. He's too human. He's from too normal a family. You see, we love spiritual stuff. We love celebrities. We love people we can put on pedestals. And sometimes this earthy Jesus This with us God is just a little bit too down to earth, too dirty, too familiar. If we can keep our God out there in the stars, we'll be happy to sing about him and study the scriptures because that makes us feel smarter and better about ourselves. We might even sacrifice some time and some finances, but 
don't let that Jesus get too close to my real life. He might start wanting to change things. So we want to keep him out there. He's much safer as an idea or a philosophy or a religious, the, 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 the leader of a religious movement because we like religion. And even for those of us who say we don't like religion, we like not liking religion, but we still don't deal with the person. And that's what Emmanuel does to us. He starts messing with us. He just might start making claims on our lives. The song sobers us with uh, the lines of Jesus being Emmanuel, as close as blood and bone, heaven's human word, divine and human, God and man, all powerful and accessible, justice and mercy kissing in one human being and one God. Thankfully, he did not wait for us to get our theology just right, because I'm sure nobody has it just right yet. He didn't ask if we were ready for him to come. He didn't even ask if we wanted him to come, which in an age of consent, I'm not sure what to do about that. He didn't take a poll or get our opinion on how he should come or when or what he should wear or what the optics of his PR person was going to be. Like, what's our strategy here to bust you out to the world? His grace, in his grace and in his sovereignty, in the fullness of time. He just came. And if there was any doubt, verse 4 reminds us that he came to rescue. The tools with jo- which Joseph laid aside, a mob would later lift and use with anger, fear, and pride to crucify God's gift. The details of Jesus' birth, who his mother was, who Joseph was, the tensions between his humanity, his divinity, none of it matters if he doesn't willingly go to the cross. None of it matters if we didn't kill him. None of it matters if he didn't rise from the grave and ascend to the right hand of the Father to take his place on the throne, also remaining the with us God by sending us his Holy Spirit. The hands that first held Mary's child preaches good news to us. It preaches that Jesus came, that love came down, that he came to gather, that he came to save, that he did this on his own initiative, whether we were ready or not. And so we sing the good news that if Joseph the carpenter can be part of that story, then so can we, and so can the people in our lives that might seem very far from God. I'd like to just close this in prayer with the last four lines of the song. So pray with me. Let us, O Lord, not only hold the child who is born today, but charged with faith, may we behold to follow in his way. Amen.